This podcast is sponsored by Safe House Rehab Thailand, the premier drug and alcohol rehab dedicated to enhancing the science of recovery. First, a plug for my sponsor, who has given me the opportunity to help the families and loved ones of alcoholics and addicts better understand the nature of the disease and what they can and shouldn't do about it, shouldn't try to do about it. We say in our podcast and blog that our primary goal is to help you make an informed decision at this critical stage of your life. Safe House Rehab Thailand represents the modern approach to recovery, founded on safety, which is why we absolutely outperform traditional rehabs when it comes to intake and detox, technology, and aftercare. To learn more about our modern, advanced approach to recovery, we invite you to visit safehouserehab.com or send your questions and comments to info at safehouserehab.com. So I got fired, and I hit the street, and that was in the mid-'80s, and I wandered about uh, for quite a while, had different jobs in New Jersey and so forth, and then I'm sitting there with with a um, headhunter, because that's what you do. You go to these recruiters that specialize in in certain sectors, and this guy, remember his name, Bob Herman? He specialized in placing ad people in ad agencies. So I'm visiting with him, and he says, well, I got this job in Milwaukee. You don't want to go to Milwaukee, do you? I said, who said? I said, I'm from the Midwest. What's the job? Account supervisor in the Miller Brewing business. I said, hell yeah, I'm going to go go interview. Well, it uh, turns out this is just the luck of the draw. A friend of mine who I'd known years and years before, I can't remember from where, Gary Titterington, I remember his name, he is at the agency that I ended up working for, and he's walking by, back in those days, the fax room, right? And he's just going to take a fax to whoever is there. And the fax is to the president of the company uh, about me, right? And he says, I know this guy. I used to work with him. So he walks in to the president's office and says, you should talk to this guy because I know him. He's okay. Like, what? He, otherwise, he wouldn't have known much about me except my resume was attached. So I ended up interviewing there, and on the way there, it, um, I stopped in Chicago. So it was New York to Chicago, and then from Chicago to Milwaukee. I drove, you know. I didn't have to fly there. So I stopped in to see my good be- friend Leo, the guy that visited me, and is now living in this magnificent home, you know. His wife inherits $50 million. I said, where do I get these guys? So I'll pick you up at the airport, and then we'll go for a little drive. You know, I said, sure. So he picks me up at the airport, and he's driving the biggest Lincoln you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, I've seen you in a while. Well, yeah, go get a couple of beers at the bar, and then we'll go take a little drive. And so he ends up parking the, the limo, no, his, his, his big Lincoln, in a church parking lot out in the middle of nowhere. I said, why are you here? You're calling attention to yourself. Well, look at it this way. I'll see. I'll be able to see him coming, <laughs> you know, Sunday night, something like that. Nobody around. It's dusk, you know. So he pulls out this cup, a joint, right? It's a big joint, and it's the most powerful marijuana I've ever smoked. So you know, there are these pauses. This is funny. I mean, this is euphoric recall. I said, you know what? I have discovered the world's first self-regulating joint. He says, and then there's, of course, there's a pause, right? because you're in frozen time. He goes, what do you mean, Ron, Bruno? I said, it's so powerful, I forgot how to relight it. (laughs) 
So we get in the car. I said, all right, I think we, he says, I think we better head home. Susan's going to worry. We didn't have cell phones in those days. So it's like, you don't want to stop at a pay phone. Let your wife know. He says, don't worry about her. She's fine. And uh, what she would get, like, she would, she was a woman with a golden heart, but she would yell at you like your mom would yell at you out of love. Where were you? I was worried, you know. Oh, never mind, you know. Well, I want to know, you know. Well, we're here, aren't we? You know, one of those arguments. <laughs> like you're a teenager and you're 40 years old. I said, he says, I love her to death, but she's such a pain in the neck sometimes. So we get in the car, we're driving, <laughs> and we're driving, and we're driving, and we're driving, and we're driving. And I said, we're not much talking, we're just, hi. I said, do you, do you know where you are? He goes, no. <laughs> We're driving for half an hour. I said, well, let's look at the signs. This is Aurora, 40 miles. I said, Aurora is way west of Barrington, isn't it? He says, yeah. He says, I wonder if we're heading. I said, we're heading west. we got to turn around and go east. So, you know, it was one of those where, do you know where you are? And it's like, actually, I don't. I don't either. You know, it's just funny. But, so... But, it, the, you know, when the high wore off, I got into a, uh, this depression, and we sat outside of his gazebo later, and I said, and he said, boy, you're, you're, really, you're really depressed. I said, yeah, that's been going on. But I got a job interview tomorrow, so I'll leave early. So I drove up to Milwaukee, and in the early morning hours, it's literally about an hour and 15 minutes door to door. I get the job, you know. Three years later, I'd worn out my welcome, and I got fired um, because I was just had become dysfunctional. I had put so many drugs and alcohol in my system, and I'll just, you know, this this part of the episode is like this. So toward the end, as I was bottoming out, uh, I was going to a psychiatrist once a week, trying to figure out what my problem was because I suffered from depression, anxiety, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and various other ailments. Like I would, I would go through a period where I, I was in a period of kleptomania, so I was stealing stuff. Uh, I was definitely sexually obsessed with a married girlfriend. So my life was shambles. I was, lived by myself, but I was paid very well. And so, but I was one of those guys who was paid well, always, you know, always made a lot of money, but never really had any. One of those I was always on the edge, sort of debting, spending. I played hockey high. I did a lot of things high. And and I was just, I was a wreck. So the last year of my job, because the first year I did very well, brought some new ideas. Second year, my behavior started to show. Because you're on your best behavior for a while. You can do that for a while. And then the client decided the client didn't like me, and I got my, my butt fired. In the meantime, up to the six months of my firing, I go to a psychiatrist once a week and bring her a new symptom of insanity, and she couldn't figure it out. She was, she was shaking her head. So one day, she said, I'm going to give you some meds to, to ease up your OCD, because that was really bad. And uh, so I got the prescription, and a few days later, I got the prescription, and uh, let's say I had it on Wednesday, and I went to see her on the Friday again. And she said to me, Ron, uh, Bruno, how is the, how is, how are the meds doing? I said, I think my head's going to explode. This is terrible. She said, you're not drinking, are you? I said, of course I'm drinking. That was the first time in six months that I ever told her what I was really doing. 
She said, well, describe what you're doing and be honest. I said, well, here's how it works. Ah, uh, you ready? She said, yeah, I got to know. Because you better check yourself in before you check yourself out. I mean, you are really circling the drain right now. And I wasn't sure what that meant. Either I was suicidal, but I didn't, I didn't think about killing myself. But she saw something happening to me where I was going down and down because she saw me every week and it was getting worse every week. Uh, so it was violently insane. Uh, anyway, she, I said, well, this is what happens. Um, I said, I don't drink during the day at work because I'm afraid I won't make it back. So I'm smart enough for that. I said, at 5.01, I walk across the street, catty corner, and I go to the bar and I have two vodka doubles. I go across the street to pick up my truck and I drive the 15 minutes to my apartment on the east side and on the way home, I have two more vodka doubles at the bar. And next door is a liquor store. I buy a bottle of wine or vodka, and vodka if I'm out of vodka or short. I go to my apartment. I make dinner. I'm now isolating. I don't go out anymore. Uh, I drink a bottle of wine. I drink some vodka, and I smoke some dope. And then I'm so screwed up by midnight that I have to take, uh, oh, yeah, I was also addicted to codeine because I used to get codeine in Ontario, where I'm from, for next to nothing. You don't even need a prescription. So I get a bottle of 500 for $25. I have plenty of that around. So I needed opiates to be able to fall asleep because I was so screwed up. Everything was spinning. I was, and I wake up, you know, six hours later, put on, in those days, put on a suit, and not know what kind of person I was going to be that day. And I was completely, completely wrecked. I was hypersensitive. I was totally self-centered, I worried about everything. And uh, so the same week she told me, uh, better check yourself in before you check yourself out, they fired me that same week. Up until that point in time, Tony, if you had turned to me and said, you think you're like do overdoing it or you know, you're drinking too much, I see some really bad behavior, I would say, well, screw you. I'm making lots of money, you know, I've got this job take the job away, I'm no longer anchored to any reality whatsoever, any evidence that I'm normal. That really helped. That really, really helped. Because the year before, they talked to me and they said, do you think you're drinking? I said, maybe. I said, they pointed me to uh, employee assistance. I went to a few meetings. Six months later, I'm drinking again because I didn't get it. I didn't surrender. I didn't, you know, I didn't really understand that the end was near. So that's when I checked myself into treatment. And from that day forward, I took it seriously because I was so desperate. And the light went on within three days of, of being in the treatment center that, hey, maybe all my problems are call, caused by alcoholism. Because I didn't know. I never made the connection that pouring all these chemicals into my brain would make me insane. Because I used to be sane. The second step says, restore me to sanity. I had a great childhood. I had a great education. I was you know, reasonably normal. But because I didn't want to face responsibility and I'm, I learned that I'm an infantile personality who doesn't want to be responsible for anything. And so that had to change. I had to grow up. So that was my entry into Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and, and the program. So thank you so much for sharing that. And that is basically leading up to you waking up. Right. Correct. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. I don't have to write any of this. I've told this story many times because I've been around for 27 years and you get a chance to share your story both in closed meetings and in open meetings. Open meetings are public's invited. 
and uh, people stand up there and they disclose who they are. Um, sometimes it's an Al-Anon speaker that comes along because that's an important component of recovery too because the whole family gets sick. And uh, here's the rule about anonymity, in case you're wondering, is I can disclose that I'm a recovering alcoholic. I can disclose that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a bit of a danger to that when it comes to well-known people because if they relapse, they go, oh, AA doesn't work, which is hardly the truth. However, I have no right to disclose your membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where, I, that's where the line is drawn. I can talk about myself, but I have no business disclosing your, you know, uh, breaking your anonymity. So that's how it works. In open meetings, you can either be a recovering person, you can be a, a non-recovering person, you can be a family member, you can be someone who's curious, you can be a reporter. So this business of AA is a secretive cult is just nonsense. Meetings, the, the closed meetings, are meetings where anonymity is assured because there's still a stigma associated with being an alcoholic or a drug addict. And so if, you know, nobody really, uh, that nobody has the right to pry, you have a right to privacy. It's not about secrecy, it's about privacy, and that's the important thing. Secrecy is something that you're ashamed of. We're not ashamed of our, our disorder, but we, many of us, need to keep it private for a whole lot of reasons, job reasons, family reasons, you know, that kind of thing. So we respect their privacy. So I have no business disclosing, even to my closest friends. Maybe I might talk to my wife about it, but she knows the rule too. She is not, she, she can keep her mouth shut. So I might have that conversation with somebody close to me, but hardly with anybody else ever. Thank you, Bruno. Oh, you're welcome. Tune in next week for the next episode of Busting Addiction and Its Myths, where we now have our weekly episodes titled by topic for you to search and download at your leisure, all in the interest of busting some myths and bringing you the truth about the face of addiction and alcoholism today.